Hey, well, good morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. It's great to see you here in person and online as well. I can't see you, but hopefully you can see us. But we're really glad to have everyone here. First, before I begin, I want to thank um, Seth Fisher and Adam Nagel from the factory for taking the last two Sundays up here. I hope you were encouraged by them and where they, they took you. I was able to listen to both and really enjoyed uh, both of them. Um, well, you may have not thought of this before, but I think you know this reality, that stories shape our identity. And stories actually shape our national identity, too. In fact, there's a song that I think some of you know. I'm not going to sing much of it, but help me out here to finish this line. I'm not going to sing it. I can't sing it. I can't bring myself to do that. But I'm going to speak the words, Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Isn't that great? I didn't sing it. You're, we're all better for that. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier, an American folklore story, folklore story of this guy who actually was a real person, ended up in Congress, and was a guy who's known to, you know, conquer the West, or conquer the wilderness, excuse me, not the West, but conquer the wilderness, you know, killing bears almost with his bare hands, and, you know, doing all this. He's the king of the wild frontier, a great picture of rugged individualism in America. How about, how about Paul Bunyan? Everyone ever travel out west and see these super huge, like 30, 40 foot lumberjack statues and wonder where they came from? Well, they came from the mines of lumberjacks of years ago. They made up this character called Paul Bunyan who had actually super like, human powers in their stories that they told and would kind of carry the hopes and dreams of all lumberjacks to be tough men who can handle any circumstance and can, you know, whatever, I don't know, leap mountains in a single bound, whatever it might be. Even the stories of the people who travel out west to conquer out west, right? The people who travel in the uh, covered wagons, basically, right? And uh, half of them would eat each other, I guess, on the way out. That's kind of a weird part of the story, right? But they would go out and conquer the wild west, and we look at that, and we're like, man, this is great, you know, rugged individualism. These stories that are a part of American cultural history have shaped our identity as people, not just reality. Every country and every culture has their own stories like that, right? It simply does. However, one thing that I think I, I want you to know is I, I, as I reflected on these stories, I was remembering back to a time in college when I think was a sophomore, and I was reading one of my, my books, which was maybe odd at the time, but I actually read the books that were in front of me. But sometimes I actually read the books, the ones that were more interesting. And I remember a, um, a story being told of a Western missionary who was serving on the island of Yap, did anyone even know that Yap existed as a place? <laughs> I, I didn't. I thought it was some made-up thing. But it's in a small little island in the um, place of Micronesia in this kind of South Pacific area. And here's what they told about this story, and I want you to process this as an American. They said they were watching. They were as a Western missionary. They were there in their country watching a race, like a half marathon. Okay? And what they saw completely floored them. They said there was a runner who was leading the pack and was well ahead and then what he did is he slowed down and waited for everybody else so they could finish together. Now, I want you to imagine how that would play in America. Can you imagine that? Like, when I read that, there's a reason I still remember that story, right? And the reason is it goes so against the culture of the hero stories that we tell that are about individual rigor in North America. Like, what in the world is going on? What are you slowing down for, man? You're about to have glory. And the reason that he slowed down is because in his culture, that would bring shame on the rest of his contestants. It would bring shame on him. 
because it would make the story about him, and all the people would talk about was his speed and his moment. But in his culture, that's not the win. Individualism, being the hero of the day, isn't a part of that culture. And in North America, it can be so incredibly difficult for us to imagine that there's a world where individual rigor and the hero story is not the right way to think. Do you know what I'm saying? I can't imagine anyone doing that here in North America. And the problem with this is when our kind of inbred hero story, rugged individualistic upbringing meets Christianity, there is a fundamental culture problem that grates against us as hard as my runner on the island of Yap. When that runner slows down, my Western missionary looks at that and is like, something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong. It's going against how I've been raised. And when Christians, whether you're American or from Yap or where I grew up in Grenada or Barbados, no matter what culture you're from, when you encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is something that grates against every culture. Every culture. Today, I want to speak specifically to this one space where I have seen it grate against the culture of North American Christianity. And as I've gotten older, here's what I've come to believe. I've, I've come to believe this because our, when faith, when our faith journey meets, meets the hero story that we are used to telling, it creates incredible toxicity and pain and burden for our Christian faith. Here's what I mean, that I've come to learn over the years. You can decide if you think this is true or not. I've come to determine over the years that it is easier to believe that we were guided to life rather than rescued from death. Here's what I mean by that. If you can imagine kind of blazing a trail through the woods and you're kind of cutting your way through and the American hero story of the Davy Crockett, or even to a degree, Paul Bunyan, is the one who can conquer all the wilderness. It's the one who can get over all the, the brush and the briars, who can handle all the wild animals that come, and who maybe while they're injured, yes, they can still find their way to hope and glory. And maybe sometime along the way you've used the term, and maybe I've used the term, here's when I found hope, here's when I found Christ, here's when I found my future, here's when I found God. And the story centers around my finding, my kind of blazing my way through the trail. And despite all odds, I, I went through some difficult stuff in my past, but I found and I kind of, I don't say it this way, but I kind of become the hero of the story. And in a way, I realize and I think that it's easier for me to think that I was kind of, I was given some help to find Christ, but I was guided to life. I was already on the journey. I had enough going for me. I had enough morality. I had enough good background. I had enough roots and strength to get going. Like there's a reason God drew me and allowed me to be there, but I was guided to life. Rarely, if ever, do I tell the story, and rarely, if ever, do these stories make it in our folklore that you were actually dead or stuck in a pit and completely helpless. You had nothing to offer. You weren't the hero. You were the person who the hero saved. That's not a good story, is it? That's not a good North American story, is it? That's not a good rugged individualism story. That's not a good hero story, is it? But see, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that it's not that you were actually and I was actually guided to life 
as if somehow all I needed was a little bit of a oop, touch here in third grade and a little bit of oop, touch there in fifth grade and a little bit of oop, touch there when I was you know, going through stuff as a young adult. The gospel comes and says to me, friend, you're not the hero of your story at all. You're the one the hero saved. And that isn't American, but it is Christian. And it grates against everything that we are raised with and everything that we're used to hearing. As odd as it is to think of a runner slowing and waiting, it is equally as odd, if not more odd, to think, you know what, friends? We're not the hero of our faith story. We have never been. In fact, we've been saved, rescued from death, not just guided to life by being given a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And in this series that we're in called Free From That, this is a, a new look that we're taking in the letter to Galatians. Um, a fellow named Paul wrote this letter to the early churches in Galatia a long time ago. And what he was dealing with were people who were coming into the church, the early Christian church, as Christians were trying to figure out who they were and what they were doing. And he was dealing with people who were Jews, who were used to doing things a certain way who had their habits, their traditions, their festivals, their feasts, their normal routines, and they were trying to figure out as Jews, well, maybe you can be a Christian and import some of our practices. Here's what you should do to be a good Jew. Here's what you can do to help yourself along. Here's what you can do to continue to be, in a way, the hero of your story so that you can live a life where you've been incredibly faithful, so that you can live a life where you've been good. You can live a life where you bring great value to the people around you, where you can be the person who fundamentally continues to be the hero of your story. See, the problem of being the hero of your story is it's an impossible burden to bear. It is a weight to bear for you and I that we simply cannot bear. I cannot carry the weight of being a Paul Bunyan or a Davy Crockett. And neither can you. We weren't built for that. And so here's what I love about this series and where we're starting with it is this, that, that you are free from needing to rescue yourself. And this is what Paul says, that you are free from needing to rescue yourself. Now, you may not have thought of it that way. In fact, I would bet if I were to ask any of you walking in here, excuse me, are you rescuing yourself this morning? You would look at me like I had not had my morning cup of coffee or that I was somehow off of my rocker in some way. What a weird question and strange way to think about life. And yet for many of us, at least in my experience, the temptation can be, if not my lived reality is, yeah, I default, and maybe you do too, to the hero narrative incredibly quickly. Just how much am I going to do? How faithful am I going to be? How consistent will I be? How moral, how ethical, how good and kind, dependable will I be along the way? And I forget where all of this began. It began without me ever needing to be the hero in the first place. And so I want to invite you to this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 1, we're going to start. There's a Bible in the chair near you. If you'd like to grab one of those, you can look it up on your device. But Galatians chapter 1 is a small little letter that is in the right two-thirds of your Bible in the New Testament. Um, if you don't own a Bible, by the way, that Bible in our chairs is a gift to you. We'd love to have you take that with you. But Galatians chapter 1, again, Paul is writing because Jews were coming into the church and 
people who used to be Gentiles, who didn't used to believe in God, were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and they were being told that they had to do certain things in order to make their faith really stick or be rooted. And Paul is going to speak against that and talk to them in hard and harsh ways, in strong ways, about what it means to really believe Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now, there's two things he's, he's going to deal with here. One is what the Jews were trying to teach these young Christians, but the second thing is Paul was dealing with people who, didn't, um, who weren't convinced that he had the authority to speak the way he did. Because they're saying, you know what, this guy Paul... He never met Jesus. The other disciples met Jesus, but this guy, what gives him the authority to speak? He was questioning his sources. They're trying to plant seeds of doubt. And so we see in the first couple of verses, Paul trying to address that. And let's look at those first two verses to begin. We're just going to look at the first five verses this morning, but the first two to begin. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Just pause it with, with me for a second here. You can see why he wrote at the beginning, Paul an apostle, he's saying, sent not from man nor by a man. He's saying, just to be clear, I'm not coming because someone commissioned me. I'm coming because of the commission of Jesus Christ and God the Father. He did have an experience with Christ, and he wants to set it at the stage from the beginning. This is his way of kind of showing his credentials. Here's why I'm here. I'm here because Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters are with me on this one here. Like, this is my background. This is what gives me right, a right to speak to you. And then the next three verses I want to read together, and we're going to take them little by little, beginning in verse 3. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So look at verse 3 with me quick. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He frames up everything around grace and peace, which, by the way, I would love to have, and I think you would as well. Wouldn't you love to have relationships that were gracious? Wouldn't you love to have a workplace that was gracious? Wouldn't you love to have people around you who were gracious and where you could find peace? And he's saying, this is the framework for the gospel. So if you experience something other than grace and peace in community with people who say there are people who are following Christ in the gospel, he's saying, this is where we should be aiming, grace and peace. And then he goes on. And verse four is where we really get into it here. He said, who gave himself, so Jesus gave himself a voluntary giving for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Let's look at this for a minute. He's saying Christ gave himself for our sins. This is such a big idea here real quick. That when, whenever you think about Christ, what Paul is saying here, I guess in the best way I can say it, is that Jesus didn't come just so that we can have someone to come to, to give us greater moral guidance. But if I can put it this way, that to come to Christ is to come for help with sin, not guidance for morality. So to come to Christ, if you find your way to Christ, the reason Paul is saying that Christ came was for 
not our morality, not our ethics, not our kindness, not our legacy, not our reputation, but he's saying Christ came for our sin, to deal with the sin that I have and the sin that you have. Now, we may know that up here, but until we are reminded and drawn back to that, sometimes it doesn't simply click. That sin is not is missing the mark, if you will, on what God would want us to do. It's also fundamentally, I believe, maybe my easiest way of understanding it, is sin is already what you know about you, that you're afraid of other people knowing about you. Sin is already the stuff that you're anxious about that no one knows. Sin is already the things that you think about about other people. Sin is the envy in your heart. It's the, the greed that you experience. It's the tendency to be selfish rather than generous. It's the tendency to hoard resources for ourselves rather than give them to you. It's a tendency to want things for ourselves. It's all those things in us that draw us to us more than they draw us both to God and others. Sin is this thing. And so Paul is saying God, God sent Christ for our sin, not for our morality, right? So he didn't want to set up and create a community that was just a moral and ethical community. That wasn't the point. He came for our sin. And then he, he says this, to rescue us from this present evil age. And this is where I get this idea of rescue. And when I looked into the word rescue, I was thinking, well, what does that really mean, right? <laughs> like, does that mean that Christ came just to kind of nudge us along on the path, as if you were already doing a good job, but you just need a little bit of help. The idea of rescue has nothing to do with that. In fact, it means a deliverance from something that you couldn't get out of on your own. So Paul is saying to this early church, like, friends, you were, you were dead. He writes this in, a, in other parts in the New Testament. You were dead in your sins, but here he's saying you, were, you, need, you need a rescue. You need, you need help. It reminds me of um, when Jen and I were driving in Dallas maybe 20 years ago. It's a long time ago. Um, I, apparently, I just got my license because I think I'm only 36, right? That we were driving in Dallas, and as we were going down the street, there was a car, a minivan, coming the other direction across a four-lane road. It was kind of a halfway divided highway. I don't know what you call that, but it was divided with some medians, and you could turn left on either side, but there's some trees and medians and all that throughout. And as we're driving, we see this, this van come the other way, and it apparently, as it was going about 45, it got clipped by another car trying to go straight across. We learned that that car that went straight across was a drunk driver who clipped the back end of this minivan, sent it out of control, coming toward us. It hit that median and spun and flipped over on its side about 100 feet in front of us. And so we were the first ones off the green light. We were waiting there. It was two, two rows of cars, and I was in the front row. As we're heading forward from the green light, we see this action happen to us, and that, that van ends up sliding on its driver's side door toward our location. Obviously, we hit the brakes, and the first instinct was like, hey, Jen, can you get out and help them out? I mean, it looks like a big deal. Now, first instinct, put it in park, get out, and man, see what we can do to help. And what we realized is there was a family in there of a grandparent and a couple young kids and a mom and dad, I believe, about six people in that minivan, and they were in big trouble. Um, that van, I was not an EMT at all, not a medic, but one or two of us, two or three of us, knew that that van needed to get up. I think it was resting on the arm of somebody. We, 
we pushed that van back up and onto its wheels so that people could actually access and get out. Whether it was the right thing to do, I don't know. It's what we did. I felt like we needed to do. But here's what I know. There was no way in the world that those people who had just wrecked in that van had any capacity to get out outside of our help in that space. It was a position of helplessness, at least a broken arm, if not more. There was no one inside that van who was going to push the van back up onto its wheels from their position. And when Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, he's saying, guys, it can be easy to think that if you import a little morality from your Jewish friends and neighbors, you will feel like you're good enough to have pushed yourself back up on your wheels and gone down the road of your life. But Christ came to rescue you in a deliverance way and from a position in which you had no ability to save yourself of your sin. To rescue you, he says, from this, and he answers the question, rescue you from what? He says, rescue you from this present age. This is an important verse, I think, for us to talk about in our context. So you see there in the text, it says, to rescue you from what? To rescue you from this present age. There are some who live around us here who have defined this present evil age. Excuse me, I didn't quote that correctly. This present evil age. There's some of us who have defined this present evil age in very specific ways. I think most all of us in the hearing, at least in this room, would know people who have defined the present evil age in certain particular ways, such as these movies are evil, but these are not, right? This amount of rubber on your tires is evil, but this is not. This amount, this, this length of skirt is evil, but this is not. This version of modesty is evil, and this is not. And there have been people who all of us know, and I think it has lived in all of our hearts too, so I am a part of this, not just a critic of. But there's a part of all of us, and we've all experienced that there's been a definition of what this present evil age is, as if somehow that there are versions of morality that Christ came to save us from. Oh, maybe we'll all wear the right skirts. Like, maybe we'll all watch the right movies. Maybe we'll all drive the right cars and listen to all the right music, and then maybe we'll be saved. But Christ didn't come for that. When, when Paul was writing to the Jews at the time, the Jews had a view of two versions of, of time. One was the present age and one was the age to come. And so to the audience in which he is writing, he's saying, Jews, Gentiles, the present age as you see it is simply the world that you currently live in. It's the world in which sin can entangle you. You can become entrapped with pursuit of wealth and greed and selfishness and pride and arrogance. That is the present age. That's why he calls it evil. This is the evilness of our world. It's what we all swim in and live in. And he's saying Christ has come to save us from the sin that entangles this world. The second age is the age to come. In the Jewish mind, it's the view of righteousness and restoration. The world is all set right. 
And so when Paul is writing, he's not writing to say, listen, let's someone make a list. Will someone in the back record all this? Because we got a list of things that are evil, all right? I mean, here's what's evil right now. Don't worry, 20 years later, something different will be evil. Like, let's all keep a list somewhere. He's not saying any of that. He's saying Christ came to save us, to rescue us. We were helpless to do it from our sin that exists in the world in which we live in right now. And this is where Christ came to rescue, to deliver, to move me past. Because on my own, I wasn't guided to life as if somehow I was doing enough. I was rescued from death. I am not the hero of this story. And he goes on. He finishes at the end of the verse. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is this view of eternity that there is an eternal view in mind, and I believe he's dealing with the second era in which the Jews are looking there, the second framework of time, not just now, but also forever. And so, so what? Let me ask this question. So what? What does this matter? Again, I want to say this. I believe that it's easier to believe that we were guided to life rather than rescued from death. Um, and I believe some of the signs of that is when a community loses where the gospel should be framed. So when Paul begins and he says, grace and peace to you, some of the signs of me and maybe you losing this perspective is I become incredibly judgmental, but quietly, right? (laughs) Not overtly, because that wouldn't be proper, but quietly. I lose the grace and I lose the peace because I forget my humble background. I think somewhere along the line, Christ saved me because I was pretty darn close to good enough. I forget that I needed rescue, that I was never the hero of the story to begin with, and I don't have to be the hero of the story to finish it going on out. I forget that. And here's the question I want to ask you. It's this. When you write the story about you and God, what is your role in your story with God? What is your role in your story with God? Let me put it this way. About, I don't know, 10 years ago, I preached a a set of messages here at Grace Point Church on forgiveness. And I finished one of those messages talking about the story that many, if not all of you know, about Charles Roberts invading the Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines that day. And after I got done talking about Charles Roberts, the reason I brought him up was because in that moment I wanted to say this, that we all are Charles Roberts. We all have that evil and wickedness in our heart. No, not we all did that. Let me be clear. We didn't all do that. My point was simply that we, until we see ourselves as so far gone that we need rescued even from that kind of evil and depravity until we understand that the scope of our sin does that to us. No, we don't all go shoot up a school. Thank the Lord for that. And I mean that. But I remember, here's why I bring that story up again now. Here's what I remember. Afterwards, there was someone, a believer who had been in church for a long time, decades, decades. And they came up to me and said, "Um, no, no, I'm not Charles Roberts. 
never will be somebody like him. Never. And I get the emotion because I brought up a hard figure. I get that. But what was underneath that concerns me. And it's the hardness that legalism brings. It is the hard shell that covers over our hearts over the years that says, no, I was never that bad. I would never be that bad. I would never need rescued from that much. And this is where Paul begins his letter. He said, grace and peace, my friends. If you want the grace and peace, know that your role in the story of your relationship with God isn't the hero. That you were the one the hero rescued. I'm the one the hero rescued. So what's your role in your story with God? Because here's one thing I do know. We all like stories. And stories shape our identity. But who among us doesn't like to play the hero? Who among us would write a story and live it out where we're not the hero? And this is where Christianity immediately comes across the grain of one of the core values of American culture, of rugged individualism, independence, freedom, the right to have my voice heard. Christianity says, friends, you're rescued from death. So I want to encourage you to ask this question as we start this series. What's your role in your story that you're writing with God? Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the time to be here this morning to consider this rescue story that you have penned, that you have originated, to recognize through the gift of Paul's writing and through the gift of your Holy Spirit guiding him that we are, are people in need of being rescued, that we stand here really empty-handed. We stand here unable on our own to pull ourselves out of the pit. So God, where we have moved from that, where the rhythms of our life have turned us from that, where we have forgotten how desperately dependent on you we are. I pray that you would forgive us for those times when I, and maybe those in this room, where I place myself as the hero, I place myself as moral enough, as having good discernment enough, being able to, to lead well enough, to speak, to think, to serve, to be consistent, to be faithful enough. I pray